You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the scriptures of our God together. We turn, first of all, this morning to Romans chapter 5, the verses 1 to 11. And thereafter, Hebrews 9, the verses 23 to 28. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received Reconciliation. And then we turn to Hebrews chapter 9, 23 to 28. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This morning we continue our series on the Canons of Dort and we move on to the second head of doctrine. The articles 1 to 4, you find those on page 545 to 546. Article 1, the punishment with God's justice requires. God is not only supremely merciful but also supremely just. And as he himself has revealed in his word, his justice requires that our sins committed against his infinite majesty 
should be punished not only in this age, but also in the age to come, both in body and soul. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is made to the justice of God. Article 2, the satisfaction made by Christ. We ourselves, however, cannot make this satisfaction and cannot free ourselves from God's wrath. God, therefore, in his infinite mercy, has given us his only begotten Son as our surety. For us, or in our place, he was made sin and a curse on the cross, so that he might make satisfaction on our behalf. Article 3, the infinite value of Christ's death. This death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Article 4, why his death has infinite value. This death is of such great value and worth because the person who submitted to it is not only a true and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. For these qualifications were necessary for our Savior. Further, this death is of such great value and worth because it was accompanied by a sense of the wrath and curse of God, which we, by our sins, had deserved. Thus far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for whom did Christ die? Did he die for the sins of all men or women, or only for the sins of some men and women? May we speak of a universal atonement, or of a limited, or if you will, particular or definite atonement? All of these kind of questions fall under the heading of the second chapter or head of doctrine of the Canons of Dorth that we have come to this morning. Yes, and controversial questions they are. If you thought that the first head of doctrine with its spotlight and God's election and reprobation was a hot topic, then you need to realize that here things often get even hotter. Commonly speaking, people who accept and embrace the teachings of the canons of Dort are called five-point Calvinists. But yet we need to be aware that there are some who are not willing to wear that label. And indeed, some people cannot bear to be called this because they stumble all over what the canons say under this second head or chapter. And as a result, the most that they would want to be called are four-point Calvinists. Unconditional election, total depravity, irresistible grace, the perseverance of saints, fine. But limited atonement? No way. After all, they say, does the Lord Jesus Christ not say in John 3:16 that God so loved the world? And does the Apostle Paul not call Christ the Savior of the world? And does the same apostle not call him a ransom for all men? In light of these verses, how then 
Dare we place any restriction whatsoever on the saving and redeeming work of Jesus Christ our Lord? Now, beloved, before we get all polarized and before we set our position in cement, it's good to stand back, reflect, and once again let the Scriptures speak and the canons summarize. In other words, let's start at the beginning once more and allow the arguments to flow. Only where is the beginning? Where should we start when it comes to the atonement or the redemption of mankind? Well, really, there's only one place to start. And to that end, I preach to you on the following theme, the heart of the gospel. And we shall see it has everything to do with our deep and terrible need, with God's great, gracious solution, and finally with Christ's all-sufficient death. Now, beloved, in order to have a clear understanding of our human need, we need to go back all the way back to the very beginning of time. And this means that we need to go back to the Garden of Eden and what transpired there. And so what all happened in the garden? Well, of course, any number of things can be mentioned, but our interest this time is first on the position and the role of man. What kind of a position was it? Well, if you study those first chapters of Genesis, you soon see that it was a position of unsurpassed ability and uniqueness. Of all that God had made, nothing else came close to the creation of the man and the woman. They were made last, and they were made best. And it even says that they were made in the image and the likeness of God. Here they were made better than good. Genesis 1.31 even says they were made very good. And so you can say man represents the pinnacle and the crown of God's creative handiwork. There's nothing in all of creation that God could be prouder about and boast more about than about man. And so man's position is unsurpassed. And the same has to be said for man's role. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. You see, man is placed in charge of the best part of all of God's creation. The best creature receives the best job. All in all, you might say, what a recipe for happiness, for contentment, for joy, and for peace. But alas, as you know, as you well know, it didn't turn out that way. It didn't become a case of, and they lived happily ever after. No, instead, it became, as Scripture so often tells us, a case of unmitigated disaster. And when you examine that, why was that? Well, three factors come to mind. First of all, man did not listen. He did not listen to God. He listened instead to the devil. And in that regard, you may have noticed that most of the problems in this life 
can be traced back to the problem of not listening. Whether it be refusing to listen to God, to parents, to teachers, to elders, to peers. A refusal to listen always spells trouble. Already at a young age, we know that if a child steadfastly refuses to listen, disaster lies close at hand. And so not listening is the first sin. The second factor has to do with not doing. Disobedience follows soon after not listening. Someone tells you to do something and you refuse to do it. And usually you have a thousand reasons or better, a thousand excuses for not doing so. And so it was with man in the beginning. There was only one limitation or restriction placed on the perfect man who has the perfect job in the perfect place, and that was you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes I wonder if the tree had been called the tree of ignorance or stupidity, would it have been equally as attractive and enticing? I'm not sure, but as it was, it represented a challenge to man. A teasing, testing, tempting challenge. And in the end, he failed the challenge. He refused to do what God commanded. He didn't stay away from that tree. He couldn't leave it alone. He saw it. He studied it. He approached it. He ate from it. And he fell. He fell into a state of total and utter disobedience. Man didn't listen. And man didn't do what God commanded. And that brings us to a third factor man did not see. In the first place, it appears he didn't see through the smooth talk of the serpent. With all of his abilities, he should have pegged him right away for what he was. Man should have jumped out at all of the distortions and the lies of the devil. And in the second place, man should have seen through the ambitions of his own heart. What's really going on here beneath the surface? Where was the real test? Now, beloved, it was in that God-man relationship. Would man remain man? Would man let God be God? Would the relationship between the Creator and the creature continue? What happened in the garden was nothing less than a revolt. A revolt against God. It was man saying no to God. It was man taking on God. It was man rejecting God, rejecting his will, and rejecting his person. And how did God take all of that? How would you expect him to take it? 
You know, if we go by what any number of theologians have written in the past and are writing in the present today, they say God should either have looked the other way or he should have poo-pooed the whole matter and said, big deal. But you know, if God were to react in that way, would he still be God? Clearly he had said to man the tree was off limits. Clearly he had said to when you eat of it you will die. And imagine now if he had after the whole thing turned around to Adam and Eve and said, I was only kidding. It was a joke. I didn't really care about whether you ate or not. You're never going to die. Such a response would instantly have undermined God. It would have done in His credibility. And any future words or commands on His part would have been instantly suspect. Indeed, how does one respect a God like that? You know, in some ways it's the same with your father. If your father tells you in no uncertain terms not to do something, not to go somewhere, for example, and if he spells out the direst of consequences, and you do it anyway, and then he comes along and pretends as if it didn't happen or it didn't matter, what does that say about your dad? Instantly his character. And his standing falls and takes the most serious hit. But, beloved, that's not what happens with our God. He doesn't sweep the offense of Adam and Eve under the rug. Now, Article 1 of the canon states that it actually is a matter of his justice. Or, if you will, of his person, of his credibility. And as a result, he cannot do anything less than take it seriously. He already has to punish it. And he does. Oh, and how he does. The article speaks about punishment in this age, but also in the age to come. It speaks about punishment in body and soul. And if you saw that Adam and Eve, what they did was only a minor infraction, a slight picadillo or a trifling offense, then you need to listen to the Apostle Paul as he comments on it. Sin entered the world, he says, through one man. And death through sin. Many died for the trespass of the one man. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. By the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. The result of one trespass was condemnation. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. That's Paul speaking in his letter to the church at Rome. And he's saying very clearly that Adam's sin is a big sin. 
And he's saying as well, Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's condemnation and judgment has become our condemnation and judgment. The second head of doctrine opens, and already in chapter 1 it describes, or in article 1 it describes, this deep and terrible need of ours. Thanks to Adam, all that awaits is judgment. And more judgment. We lie under the curse of God. And because of him, we have no future and we have no life. And so you can say, beloved, the heart of the gospel starts with the most depressing, disgusting news in all the world. However, thankfully, it doesn't remain there. As we move from Article 1 to Article 2, we also move on to something else. We move on, and you can notice that if you read along. We we move from God's justice to God's mercy. Listen to these words. God, therefore, in His infinite mercy, has given justice and mercy. What qualities those are. And especially what qualities they are in our God. And indeed, they are fundamental. Think, for example, of a passage like Exodus 34, the verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers the third and fourth generation. You know what's so remarkable about that passage of Holy Writ? It's how it describes our gods in terms of both justice and mercy. Obviously, we wouldn't do so. Have you noticed we tend to pick and choose our way through God's many, many qualities? For example, popular Christianity avoids almost all talk of God being connected to justice, condemnation, trespass, or judgment. Everything that smacks in one way or another of being somehow negative about God, we remove from our popular Christian vocabulary. And so what we really end up with is a God who is spineless, syrupy, and sentimental. But yet in Exodus 34, the Lord himself warns us not to look at him in this way. For he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And yet, beloved, if the Lord is just, he's also merciful. 
And indeed, I would say to you that Exodus 34 stresses this side of his character more than any other. Words like compassion, gracious, love, forgiveness, they tell the story. And expressions like slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love. Those things cannot fail to move us. Our God is a God of justice. But He's also a God of infinite mercy. But how do we know that? Of course, we can say we know it from His creation. We know it from His daily care and His daily goodness to us. And all that's true, of course. But there's something else that's truer still, and that is we know it from the giving of His only begotten Son. Nothing is dear to God the Father than His only Son. Jesus Christ is the Son of His love. And the unity and the fellowship and the connectedness, the closeness of the Father to the Son are beyond our description and imagination. A husband and a wife may share a most blessed communion together. But no matter how sublime it may be, it still doesn't compare to this communion. Well, now, beloved, Article 2 reminds us that this special Son has been given to us by the Father. But given in what way? Well, it says, given to us, it says, as our surety. Now, what does that mean? What does that expression in Article 2 mean? Well, technically, a surety refers to a person who assumes responsibility for the obligations of someone else. I'm sure that almost all of you fathers here know something about that. One day your son comes to you in that special way with that special look in his eye and you know he wants something from you. What does he want? He wants you to sign for a loan. You see, he's come across this really great car that he wants to buy, but he doesn't have a credit rating. And the bank's not even going to loan him a plug nickel. He needs someone else to sign on the dotted line for him. And that's where you come in, Dad. He wants you to sign for him. But that also means that if he cannot pay, you will have to step up to the plate and do the paying for him. Well, beloved, that's a surety. And that's also what God has given us. He has given us His Son as our surety. He has sent Him to assume, if you will, responsibility for us. Christ signs the loan for us. But in what way? 
Well, here things really take a twist and become unbelievable. As it says, for us or in our place, he was made sin and a curse on the cross so that he might make satisfaction on our behalf. How is it possible? It's one thing for a father to sign a loan for his son But you know, it's an entirely different thing for God to give us His Son as a surety for, of all things, our sins and our curse. What kind of a father would do that to his son? What kind of a father would lay such an ugly, distasteful, despicable burden on his son? Only one kind of father, a heavenly father. Oh, the depths of his mercy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is Lent. It's that time of year when Christians everywhere turn their minds and their hearts towards the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ our Lord. In great awe, we look up to our God who sent Him. And in great humility, we look down to our sin that turned Him into a curse. And in constant thankfulness, we look forward to a sacrifice that is paid for our sins. And how it is paid Article 3 of the canons go on and tell us this death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for our sins. It's your death has accomplished great and unimaginable things. First, look at what it has done to our sin. It covers or it expiates our sin. Romans 5.19, through the the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The perfect obedience of Christ, and you read that all through the letter of the Hebrews, the perfect obedience of Christ covers in the sight of God all of my wretched disobedience. And the result is sin no longer has power over us. Oh, what the death of Christ has not done to sin, but also what it has done to God. It propitiates God. What does that mean? Well, it means that the curse-bearing of the Son appeases the wrath of God against all of our sins. 
But the death of Christ does more. It also reconciles God. You know, as long as we live in sin and trespass, there is this huge barrier between God and us. But thanks to Christ, Scripture says, the barrier is removed. And man and God can have fellowship again. And finally, there's one more thing that the death of Christ does to God. It satisfies God. On the cross, Christ did all that was necessary. And once he is finished, there is nothing more for him to do for us. And so you see, beloved, the cross does something to sin. It does something to God. And it also does something to us sinners. You can say it redeems us. It ransoms us. It it sets us free. On January the 1st, 1863, the American President Abraham Lincoln declared all slaves in the south of the United States to be free. It was called Emancipation Day. My beloved, every Good Friday should remind us that we too have been set free. We too have been emancipated. Free from sin. Free from the curse. Free from an evil conscience. And indeed, so great and powerful is the death of Christ that the canon say it is abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. It's that powerful. It's that effective. It's that great. And if you ask why, well, Article 4 gives the answer. It reminds us that the one who died was none other than a true and perfectly holy man and the only begotten Son of God of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Quite simply, this death is not like the death of any other man because Christ, the Christ who died, is unlike any other man. He is man and he's God. This person has two natures. This person on the one hand is so utterly like us, but on the other hand, he is so utterly unlike us too. He shares our flesh and our blood. But he also shares God's very nature. He is God the Father's most astounding answer. Your sin and my sin and for all of our sins. He and he alone has made satisfaction for us. The Father is satisfied because of the work of His Son. And so, beloved, taken together what we have here in these opening articles of the second head of doctrine, 
You can say it represents the heart and the pulse of the gospel. Here we are reminded of our sin. Here we are confronted with God's wrath. Here we have God's justice and mercy. Here we have the Son of God as our surety. And here we have an abundant satisfaction based on a death of infinite value and worth. In short, we have it all. Our need, God's solution, Christ's death, and all that is left for us to do is to embrace it with a believing heart to say hallelujah and to live to the praise of His glorious grace in Christ forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.